Canuck Central in the Kintec studio. This weekend, you can meet our friend and buddy, friend of the show, Yannick Hansen, at the grand opening of Aura Natural Health Market on 204th and 80th in Langley this Sunday, October 1st, between 12 and 2 p.m. Mention Sportsnet 650 and get a cool little 15% off discount during the month of October. That is Aura Natural Health Market on 204th and 80th in Langley this Sunday from 12 to 2, and you can meet the Honey Badger there as well. Dan Riccio and Satyar Shah. Some uh, thoughts coming in during the... uh, break on the Dunbar Lumber text message inbox. Uh, Mike in Maple Ridge. Has Tristan Nielsen got any preseason games yet, or did he not make it that far? Uh, Also, do you guys see Baines sticking around for the regular season? We haven't seen Tristan Nielsen too much. Uh, Mm -hmm. Looked fine in uh, the training camp scrimmage on Saturday in Victoria, but uh, as far as Arstie Baines goes, he's been one of the standout players so far for the Canucks. He has. I still think a long shot to make the team, Yeah, but he's at least put himself in the mix a little bit. Uh, let's bring in our next guest. From The Athletic, it is Harmon Dial. Thanks for this, Harm. How are you? Doing well, guys. How are you? Uh, we're doing well, man. Um, yeah, since the texter just mentioned it, uh, Deep Baines. It kind of... Uh, Baines kind of highlights something that the Canucks have done, I think, pretty well as a front office, uh, at least Patrick Alvin, and that's identify some... You know, players, undrafted players to come in and at least uh, create some NHL competition and try to bring along guys, take a lot of throws at the dartboard and see if something uh, really works out and hits big. Yeah, absolutely. And I thought outside of the one play at the end of the third period where he got danced by Gleason, I thought uh, he was quietly really impressive the way that he was able to get in on the forecheck. I mean, there were a couple of occasions there. Um, one in particular stood out where he was able to take a route on Darnell Nurse and force him to um, sort of rim the puck up on the strong side where the Canucks had other four checkers to be able to win the puck and keep it in the offensive zone. So it's like that's the next step where it's not just Bain sort of making those plays at Penticton against sub NHL competition. He's doing that against Darnell Nurse, one of the highest paid defensemen uh, in the NHL. And in the def- in the defensive zone too, you saw the way that he was able to come back uh, positionally, break a couple of uh, plays up. And, and the other thing that stands out about his skill set is that he's such an accurate passer. He's able to um, in high traffic when there are other sticks and skates. Um, he's able to fit the puck through pretty tight lanes, and he rarely turns the puck over, which is huge in terms of reliability. So uh, again, I think he's yeah, I think because of how deep the Canucks are numbers-wise up front, he's probably not going to make the team out of camp. But I watched him the other night and went, man, like he's the type of forward that based off of the way he played last night, I'd feel comfortable calling him up uh, from Abbotsford in a scenario where you end up with you know a couple banged up bodies and you need reinforcements. Absolutely. And I'm I'm there with you too. I think Baines it would be good for him to keep playing. And I have the same feeling about Atu Ratu. I, I look at him and he's been he's looked really good. A lot of positives about his game, but it's probably best for him to keep cooking in Abbotsford and, and keep growing his game and get a little bit quick, quicker even despite the fact he's taking some steps in that direction. But you're right. I think we're at a point now with these guys, especially a lot of these forward options that. In a pinch, if these guys have to play games at some point in the season, not only is it intriguing, but maybe they can actually help you tide things over for a few games. Absolutely. And, I mean, we haven't even talked about a guy like Aiden McDonough, right? Mm -hmm. 
um, who was so good at Penticton, and that just speaks about how deep they are, especially on um, on the wings. Where I even look at a guy like McDonough, and especially for a second power play unit that maybe doesn't have a high end shooter, a high end finisher. I'm like, again, if you end up in a situation mid season in the second half where you have a bunch of uh, players hurt, like inevitably most NHL teams do, um, you've got options depending on how guys develop and, and perform um, in Abbotsford. And, and that's a, you know, a really positive sign. I mean, you mentioned Ratu there uh, in the first preseason game against Calgary. I thought he was arguably their best forward. The way that he, the way that he was able to, um, wins so many battles he's just so strong on his feet um along the boards especially and um such a smart two-way player how deep he comes in the defensive zone how uh, aware he is of defensive threats and then when he does get the puck the vision that he has again the foot speed um, needs improvement he's not the most dynamic player but there's enough skills there to where you look at Ratu and go he's best served spending as much time in Abbotsford this season, just so he can play, um, you know, a big top six role, score a lot of points, build some confidence, uh, be a big part of a power play unit. But in terms of even thinking ahead um, for the next couple of seasons, I look at Ratu and I'm like, I definitely see the skill set there for this guy to turn into um, an impactful bottom six NHL player. You know, one of my uh, takeaways from, from last night, it was, uh, I guess the Canucks had a low bar after losing ten nothing, but you know it was a uh, it was a professional performance, and overall, I think that's sort of the game Rick Tockett wants to see. Maybe uh, once the season starts, he'd like to end up with the result, of course, but more low event hockey. That's probably the name of the game for the Vancouver Canucks moving forward here. Absolutely, that that was my first thought in terms of my big takeaways after that game was. I think that's a template. I think that's a preview of the type of uh, hockey we're going to see in a Rick Tockett, especially against uh, an offensive firepower team like the Oilers, right? Where the t- where the Canucks were a lot more organized. They were structured. They didn't have any careless turnovers. And sure, the Oilers definitely generated uh, a fair ton of B-grade chances, and, and Casey DeSmith played really well, but they did a really good job of, especially off the rush, making sure that the Oilers weren't able to make a crossing passes, the types of plays where it's like the goalie has no chance. So they didn't allow many grade A opportunities. Um, you also saw Vancouver centerman. I thought, you know, was really interesting, especially Bluger was a standout there, but even Pedersen a few times, how, how low they were coming in the defensive zone uh, to help uh, the defenseman win battles out of the uh, out of the corners, and especially with the impact Carson Soucy was able to make, I thought the Canucks were able to kill plays off the cycle a lot quicker. They weren't um, sort of hemmed for those really really long uh, shifts uh, as often as they perhaps were last year. And then the flip side of the coin, of course, uh, and um, and the one thing you have to be mindful of the mindful of with this team is. They, you know, the Canucks generated very little offensively as, as a consequence, especially at um, at five on five, didn't score a goal there. Of course, their lo- lone goal came uh, on the man advantage with uh, with Hughes, and um, you know, just very little going for them uh, offensively. And and this is where you think back to when, um, you know, of course the personnel is different, and hopefully they can implement it better. But in the beginning part of the 2021-22 season, when Green tried to um, tighten things up. Uh, and play a more defensively oriented style. One of the issues that started to come up was 
the team started to look really flat offensively. And, um, and so that's going to be something to keep in mind. But overall, I thought, especially against Edmonton's big guns and the, t- and the types of lineups that both teams had, I thought it was um, a, really ba- a really good bounce-back performance for, for the Canucks in the second preseason game. Now, a player who uh, we got a chance to watch for the first time in Canuck Colors at training camp was Carson Soucy, and we we discussed quite a bit how he struggled in that scrimmage. How did you think he played in Ed- against Edmonton, and uh, what, what, how do you see him ultimately fitting on this team? Yeah, I thought he looked a lot more comfortable playing mm-hmm. the right side in that game. Uh, I thought he was a positive, of course. There was uh, the one play in the defensive zone where you would have liked to see him uh, cover Nugent Hopkins better on on that goal. But outside of that mistake, um, I thought I thought he I thought he was impressive. The way that he defended the rush and the reach that he has is just incredible, right? Seeing a defenseman of of that stature and he's able to use it in a way that Myers isn't. Like like I can't really pin down why there's such a stark difference, but. Um, just seeing how disruptive his uh, law, uh, you know, reach is and, and how well he sort of straddles across the blue line. Um, a couple times, uh, a couple times there, you, you know, one of them on the penalty kill disrupting McDavid and the second one, I believe Edmonton had an uh, odd man rush and Susie was able to come, uh, come on the back check and steal the puck, steal the puck away. Uh, I thought he was uh, solid there and w- with the puck too, which is, one of my, you know, heading into the season concerns, but okay, can he handle playing the right side? Uh, I thought he was poised. I thought he moved pucks up with simple plays pretty well. Uh, and um, overall, at 5-on-5 five five and the penalty kill, I thought he had a really solid night, especially, again, uh, the number of times that he was able to come out of a corner um, when the Oilers were trying to cycle. He was able to take a 50-50 situation and help the Canucks regain possession. All those little plays seemed to add up. Hyman Dial, our guest. Um, you know, speaking of the new additions, uh, Carson Soucy, he, he didn't look um, the most comfortable, I'd say, in the scrimmage last week when he played with Quinn Hughes on the right side. But last night you saw more of, you know, I, I think what the Canucks hope to have him bring, and that's a presence on the penalty kill and a guy who uh, is going to be strong in the defensive zone. But you know, there's still the concern of how well is he able to move the puck, and I think that's something we're going to see play out through the course of the season. Yeah, definitely. And I thought it was interesting in, in that Edmonton game that um, I, I don't know if if it's a way that um, you, you're able to sort of handle it moving forward, but I, I thought there weren't too many areas where Susie had to uh, go back and retrieve a, a puck in the defensive zone and make a play under pressure. And what you saw was that when he has support, when he has a little bit of time, he, he is able to make the simple play, especially a couple of times you saw the centers were able to support the defenseman really well in the breakout. And, and that's where he looked poised. I thought he did a good job of sort of when you're playing your offside, you have to shift your body position a lot when you're accepting passes and, and make sure that before you get the puck, uh, you're situated in, in, in situated in a spot where it's not awkward accepting it, and that you don't uh, mishandle the mishandle the puck. And so I thought Susie was uh, was smooth smooth there, definitely better than uh, what we saw from him in, in the scrimmage. And, and of course, uh, defensively without the puck, I mean the way that he was able to, to defend the rush, hold the blue line, um, the reach that he had was incredible. Uh, and on the penalty kill as uh, as well both when Edmonton was trying to enter the zone, but also when they were trying to work the puck down low, there were 
a couple of impressive sequences where he was, he was able to break uh, plays up and, and help the Canucks get, get a couple of clears there. You know, I know in uh, your latest at the Athletic, you go through uh, every decor in the league and and uh, and rank them. And look, we're not expecting the Canucks to to be high on the list. There's only a few teams uh, below them, and uh, they they aren't in the bottom tier. So I guess that's that's progress from where we've seen this decor in, in the past. But one thing I wonder about how they're going to is how they're going to deploy this decor. And and we started to see it a little bit last night. I think we saw it even at the end of last season, but you know, it, it might be Quinn Hughes and uh, Carson Soucy to start the season, but we'll see Quinn Hughes play with a lot of different pairs. It seems as though Adam foot is going to uh, mix and match as games go on rather than, you know, have staples for his top two D men, uh, Quinn Hughes and Philip Hronick. Yeah. I'm really hoping Soucy can, take the next step and really stabilize his game on the right side and stick there with Hughes uh, on a more consistent basis because I mean, I don't like it worked fine last night, but I overall don't love the idea of, um, of Hughes playing with three different partners on, on any given night. I, I just feel it's tough to build chemistry. Um, it's tough for partners to be able to um sort of gain predictability, right? Because Hughes is a really active player. The way that he's going to be, want to jump up in the rush, pinch up the wall, um, the way that he breaks the puck out. Um, it, he's going to want to be really active, really aggressive. And from Quinn's perspective, you might feel a little bit more hesitant being as aggressive if you're, um, if you're unaware of whether your partner has, um, has played with you enough or, or can pick up on your habits and, and tendencies enough to know where to cover you and, um, and, and even how you're going to play off of each other in the offensive zone. Uh, so that's definitely a work in progress. I mean, especially like McWard's a, a promising prospect, but I, I don't know how I feel about the idea of, of him getting some shifts behind, besides uh, Hughes. Uh, it wasn't that he played that badly the other night, but I mean, we saw the hooking penalty in the first period. Uh, we saw a couple of shifts where the Oilers' top line was able mm-hmm. to, I think, dance around him a little bit easily. Um, and I also don't love the idea of Myers getting a lot of shifts beside uh, Hughes. So this yeah. is where I'm really hoping Susie can um, can stabilize this game because I like the idea of, of Hughes and Susie together um, if that can work as opposed to Hughes just cycling through three partners on any given night. Yeah, I mean, the McWard thing, I will say I've been more impressed the more I've seen from him. I'm more encouraged about his long-term future with some of the things I've seen from him. I want him, want him to go down and play more games. And given everything they've said about you can't rush guys, you can't make the same mistakes this organization has made in the past by expediting players because they were your best options, you can't say that and have that belief, I believe, and then put McCord on this roster and try to force feed him some minutes. I, I don't think it makes any sense, but I am encouraged about his long-term kind of future and what he might bring. But it leads us to the big question in general. Do the Canucks have enough to be able to get around that third righty defenseman issue? Can they play a lefty on that side? And how long does it take before they may have to look for outside alternatives? Yeah, I am a little bit concerned about um, about the right right side and and finding that uh, that extra guy. And, and I think part of the reason why McWard's gotten such a long look there is almost a result of the other candidates sort of being unable to step up. Right, uh, you look at a player like Noah Juleson, Right, um, he made a positive impression in the twelve games he played 
um, in the second half of last season, but we saw that he was awful against Calgary and then demoted from the main practice group. Uh, Jet Wu looked really good in training camp, but again, same sort of situation was torched in that, uh, in that Calgary game. Didn't look ready. Uh, Philip Johansson. I remember speaking to Ryan Johnson um, around March uh, and and this was around the time where the, the where the discussion around Johansson coming over to North America was first picking up, and um, and and RJ said that hey we we think that this guy has the potential to play NHL games this season, but looking at Johansson so far, he looks uh, he looks a little bit raw. There's definitely promising offensive tools, but I don't know if the defensive game is quite there yet. And so uh, initially going into camp, I, I thought they actually had a lot a lot of um, you know solid depth options in terms of fringe six, seven, eight guys, but they've been a little bit disappointing so far. And, um, and I do wonder if, um, if there are more enticing opportunities, whether it's on the waiver wire, um, or, or another way to to sort of bring in some help because it is like, I, I do feel they're one righty short of, uh, of feeling fully comfortable on that blue line. Um, the biggest story of preseason or one of the bigger stories of preseason has been Vasily Podkolzin and, and Nils Hoaglander. And, you know, Hoaglander's done enough to, to stay with Elias Pettersson and uh, Andre Kuzmenko to this point. But Vasily Podkolzin, you, you might not be able to, to say the same. It, it feels like, you know, he's on the roster for tonight against Seattle. Feels like a big spot or a big night for Vasily Podkolzin to show his best self. 100%. Uh, I mean, up to this point, he's been really disappointing. There's no way that you could look at uh, the way Pod Colson's played, and especially in light of um, how well Nils Oman has looked, how well Jack Sednika has looked, and conclude that Pod Colson deserves uh, a spot to be uh, among the top 12 forwards in the opening night uh, lineup. It's uh, It's been a little bit odd. I mean, he opened camp with uh, Miller and Besser, but was quiet in that Saturday scrimmage and then looked totally lost against the Flames in the first preseason game. And watching him so far, there there seems to be a couple of um, of areas where you'd like to see him play better so he can find his rhythm, find his game. The first is that uh, he's getting beat too easily in the forecheck. He seems to be taking the wrong routes and, and defenders seem, seem to be able to sidestep him a little bit too easily, which um, is a problem because you look at the way Rick Tockett wants to play with that North uh, South aggressive forechecking style. That's just not going to cut it, especially when you look at Pod Colson's size and his work rate, like he should have the physical tools to be effective on the forecheck. Uh, and he just hasn't been able to make an impact there at all. And the second area where I've been a little bit underwhelmed is that he's looked slow making plays with the puck. And, and when I say that, I don't mean his skating. Um, what I mean is that when he receives the puck, he takes too long to make a decision about who to pass to or what route to skate it with. And because of that, um, against Calgary, for example, it felt like he lost the puck or, or wasn't able to get it out of the defensive zone uh, on a couple of uh, sequences where it just needed to be quick bang, bang plays. And, you know, I, I remember talking to uh, Rick Tockett in the, uh, earlier in the offseason that and he spoke about how important uh, it was for Pod Colson to become faster with those reads and um, and hone in and hone in on that uh, hockey sense and making sure that hey before I get the puck um, I've got to know what my next play is and and I think that has to do with obviously how fast the speed of the game is at the NHL level and um, yeah no doubt about the fact that it is uh, concerning so far to to see where Pod Colson has been at and he needs a big performance.
No, I think he certainly does. Now, before I let you go, the Canucks made a little bit of news today, placing Spencer Martin on waivers. And we'll see ultimately if somebody picks him up or somebody after he passes through waivers makes a trade where Vancouver takes a contract back or minor league contract back to make the deal happen. So I wonder which one of those things does occur here. But I do think if they are able to free up that little bit of a budget, they are able to free up a contract spot and have 45 contracts. I do think it gives them a little bit of flexibility to perhaps do what you mentioned earlier. There will be guys on the waiver wire. And is it worth maybe picking up a righty that finds his way on the waiver wire, even if he isn't a long-term solution to see if you have something there? Yeah, absolutely. Especially because the, the beauty, the beauty about the waiver wire is more often than not, it's guys that are below uh, below you know sort of a million or so which means that uh, it doesn't affect your cap because you can just demote somebody um else down and, and you don't have to worry about uh the salary cap implications because I, I would actually have the flexibility for that and um a lot of times you do see legit nhl talent um unearthed from the waiver wire i mean you look at um arizona picking up you so and, and i know he's a left shot uh, defenseman but uh, Val Mackey was able to come in and he emerged as a top four defenseman. Um, and, and of course, before that, he was a, a really high pedigree first round pick prospect for Calgary. So it's under, understandable why he was able to hit that potential. But I mean, to land a top four guy off, off waivers is, um, is fantastic. And of course, we've also seen it with Florida um, year in, year out. I mean, last season, it was uh, Josh Mahura they picked up from Anaheim and he was able to uh, play a huge role in stabilizing the Panthers as uh, third pair and then Obviously, even before that, you can look at uh, Forsling when he, when I believe it was Chicago that discard, discarded him. Um, so absolutely, uh, I think there usually is legitimately intriguing um, defensemen that uh, teams can't afford to sort of keep on their roster. And uh, based off how Vancouver's right side depth looks right now, I absolutely think it's worth considering them sort of scouring the waiver wire and, and seeing uh, what uh, what attractive options could be out there. Harm, we appreciate the time as always. Thank you. Thanks, guys. There's Harmon Dial from The uh, Athletic joining us here on Canucks Central. Uh, Ty Smith, the interesting name that made it to waivers today from the Pittsburgh Penguins, was uh, part of the John Marino trade that mm-hmm. saw uh, John Marino head to New Jersey. Um, you know, he had a strong rookie season. He's a left shot, though, and mm-hmm. um, even though he has played the right side a little bit, Given everything Rick Tockett has said about preferring lefty-righty, I would imagine the Canucks want an actual right-side defenseman if they do explore the waiver wire. And, you know, something that we've talked about this week ties into that conversation. Are you really all that worried about losing a Noah Juleson or a even Jack Rathbone at this point, given what he's shown on waivers? If if there is a better option out there, um, then... At least on the right side, the Canucks shouldn't be afraid to explore it. No, I mean, guys like Ty Smith hit the waiver wire. Yeah. Does he get picked up even? If he doesn't get picked up, what does that tell you about Rathbone's potential of getting picked up? Rathbone's even older than Ty Smith, you know, less pedigree than Ty Smith. Ty Ty Smith, what, had 28 points in a short stint in the NHL? I've always, I like Ty Smith a lot in his draft year. He, his overall game hasn't developed. Like He's a good offensive defenseman. He moves the puck well, but he's 5'11", not great defensively, has some issues um, in other areas of his game. He's kind of like Jack Rathbone to some extent. Yeah, you know, and I wouldn't be against claiming a player like this if you didn't already have a couple players like that, yeah. you know? And I mean, at the very least, like, you know, Jack Rathbone does have uh, at least better skating. Yeah. Uh, you know, better pace to his game than... 
Ty Smith does. Yeah, he does. Um, so I, you know, with Rathbone in the fold, I wouldn't go after a Ty Smith type. And we'll see if they even get claimed. But there will be a righty defenseman who hits a waiver wire. Yeah. You know, and the question is, how good is that player going to be? But is it worth you saying, you know what, like, let's just take a gamble here. And if you do lose Spencer Martin, open up a contract spot, free up a little bit of more cash. Yeah. It makes it a bit easier to go and do those things. Because the thing is, you don't want to be picking a guy off of waivers and only having three contract slots available the rest of the season. Yeah. Because then, you know, you're limited in terms of free agent signings, UFAs, uh, college free agents, and then also in trades you want to make. But if you're, able, if you're able to lose a contract from Spencer Martin, I think it opens things up for you a bit. It's uh, Dan Richo, Satyar Shah. You are listening to Canuck Central. When we come back, we'll start to preview... The Pacific Division as we get closer and closer to season opening puck drop. Jeff Baker of the Seattle Times is going to join us. Aura Natural Health Market is Langley's new locally owned health food store. Meet Yannick Hansen this Sunday between 12 and 2 p.m. at Aura's grand opening. Giveaways, live music, samples, face painting, and much more. Check it out this Sunday at Aura Natural Food Market. Canuck Central continues on Sportsnet 650. Catch up on what happened in Vancouver sports with Halford and Bruff in the morning. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Central, hour number two in the Kintec studio. Kintec Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at kintec.net. It's Canucks and Seattle Kraken tonight. We got our first look at uh, Seattle for this season, coming off what was a surprise sophomore year in the National Hockey League for the Kraken. Our next guest is Jeff Baker of the Seattle Times. Thanks for this, Jeff. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you guys uh, gearing up as, as we get ready to restart this rivalry? Well, the Canucks aren't in uh, complete chaos yet, so uh, that's uh, it's a positive. It's a step forward from uh, 12 months ago, Jeff. That, that always helps the rivalry. And I think the fact that <laughs> Kraken finally figured out how to beat them last year will probably help the rivalry a little bit as well. Although it's preseason, I don't know how much rivalry we'll see tonight. Yeah, it's, Although, uh, I, last year I think there were there were two fights in the first period of that last preseason game. So who knows? Who knows what will happen? Yeah, who knows? Uh, it's a continued development of the uh, of the rivalry, and you know Seattle uh, ends up in the playoffs last year. Maybe the Canucks will uh, you know make this more of a rivalry by being in the playoff conversation this year. But Seattle's, they're in an interesting spot. You know, uh, surprised everybody last year with the way, with how well they played. And then they get into the second round of the postseason. Um, I, I thought it was, I thought it was going to be a more, um, a bigger summer for Ron Francis and the Seattle Kraken. I thought they'd make one big move, but that didn't really happen. How did you feel about the uh, Kraken offseason? I, I thought they they might... Uh, be positioned to make one more bigger move for somebody. Um, the the one thing that, that you know we see going into this season is they're freeing up a lot of spots in the forward ranks in in the ranks of their forward lines so that they can eventually you know acclimate guys like like Shane Wright and Ty Cartier in there. You know Cole Lynn's going to get one last shot at, at maybe sticking with the NHL team in camp, although, he, you know, he's in tough. There's a lot of guys there. But, I mean, definitely Shane Wright and Ty Cartier are going to 
have a chance. And, and so the Kraken let a lot of guys go that, that really contributed to their success last season. They, they, they had a lot of scoring balance up and down their lines, and they let some fourth-line guys get away uh, via free agency. I think Daniel Sprong, Morgan Geeky, Ryan Donato, that's a lot of goal scoring on their fourth line they're going to have to replicate. And so, you know, I, I'm not saying Shane Wright's going to make the team right away. I'm not saying Ty Karchay is going to make it right away, although he has a, he has a pretty good chance in camp. But, I mean, it's going to take some time to acclimate some of these guys in there, and you're almost in a posi- in a spot where the team might take a step backwards before it can go forwards. Um, and maybe that step backwards happens the first two months, and then they, they leap forward after that. But I, but I think they might be in that kind of a situation. I, I definitely don't think they're going to race out of the gate towards 100 points. They, they have a very, very difficult schedule early on, and, and that's going to be interesting to see how they navigate that. Um, don't forget, too, they have Andre Burakovsky coming back. He's actually in the lineup for tonight's game. He'll be playing tonight, his first game since uh, February 7th when he tore his groin muscle. And so he was leading the team in scoring when he got hurt last year. So, I mean, bringing him back, they're, they're treating it almost as akin to, to having a major free agent signing because all of their playoff success and, and you know, their run-up to the playoffs came without Burakovsky. And so they're kind of looking at it that way. Uh, will it be enough just getting him back? Uh, I don't know. I, I guess we'll have to wait and see. Um, they, but they, they are going to be hard-pressed to replicate some of that scoring that they, that they let go. And it's not often you talk about fourth-line scoring right. being key, but, I mean, this was probably the, the best fourth line in hockey last year. And, uh, you know, they've lost three out of the four guys that were mainstays. Uh, on that as they rotated guys in and out of there. Um, and so so that's going to be interesting to watch. It was really interesting that almost everything they touched in that regard, whether it was Sprong or Donato or players like that, they all kind of hit and had really good years. And the one guy I wouldn't bet against having a good season because he has shown some capabilities in, in the past and maybe does provide that secondary scoring is Kyler Yamamoto. How has he kind of looked through camp and how big of an opportunity do you think he's getting with the Kraken? I think he's going to get a, a big opportunity to, to to make this team. I mean, look, they they're paying him a million five for one season. I mean, that's uh, you know, it's not insignificant money, but it's not you know tying him in long term. So basically, he's holding down one of those spots that they're keeping available for not only Shane Wright and and, and Ty Cartier, but other guys, other prospects like uh, Jagger Furkus and other people that Ryan Winterton that they have sort of lingering down right now in in, in the minors, and so. Um, you know, Yamamoto is going to be one of those guys holding it down, and they're going to need him to score, you know, 15 goals or, or more this season to start replicating some of what they lost. Um, and for Yamamoto, really, I mean, this is a key season for him. I mean, he had two goals the other night in in, um, in Calgary facing a split squad. And, and, you know, so that's a very good start for him. Um, as far as how he's looked at camp, you know, he, he's looked okay at times. Um, I guess we'll see as the games progress. But but really, this is his time to click. I mean, if he doesn't get it done this season, you know, how many more opportunities are there going to be out there for him? And it sounds hard, to, you know, to say that because he was taken 22nd overall, I think, in 2017. But you know, that's a that's a while ago. And so uh, there's a reason the Oilers let him go. Uh, some of it had to do with salary cap crunch. Uh, some of it had to do with a lack of production. I mean, he scored I think 10 goals last year and. You know, yes, he had injuries and his season was shortened somewhat, but that, that's kind of not where they thought he would be at this point. And so for Yamamoto, if he wants to reestablish his career, and he, he's, he turns 25 tomorrow, so he's hardly an old guy, uh, you know, he's going to have to start. He's going to have to start clicking. And I think the Kraken are, are, are counting on that motivation to, to squeeze, you know, maybe a little bit more than $1.5 million in value out of him this season. So, 
So we'll see. I don't I don't know if they view him as a fourth guy, a fourth line guy long term. I think they're hoping he can work his way up the lineup. Matthew Beneers, Matty Beneers, we saw him win the Calder Trophy last year, NHL's Rookie of the Year, and one of the things that stood out to me was just his uh, two-way intelligence as such a young player in the National Hockey League, especially playing the middle of the ice. Uh, what does a sophomore season look like for Matty Beneers? I honestly think he has to put a more complete season together, and, and you don't hear that very often with a Calder Trophy winner, but you know, if I'm being honest about it, he had that trophy locked up in, a, in about the month of January. Uh, there wasn't much competition once some goalies started getting hurt. You look around the league, there there were some late bloomers, but really, Beniers, it was Beniers, Beniers, Beniers uh, from, from October through January. And then after that, you'll remember in the game against the Canucks, Tyler Myers basically went and blasted Beniers off his feet behind the play. Had nothing to do with the puck or looking for the puck or anything like that. And, and Beniers suffered a concussion because of that. And, and he came back, and he wasn't the same player. Um, he didn't look the same for a good month and a half after that, you know, he's still putting up some points, still had his moments, but but he wasn't the same player. He didn't look like he had the same confidence. And, and the other thing I noticed, a lot of guys around the league were starting to take runs in the years, kind of like Myers did. Not maybe not as behind the play as that. Uh, maybe the hits were a little cleaner, but they were they were they were taking their wax at him. And so he's going to have to hold up physically. The Kraken probably need to get some guys that can respond a little bit uh, quicker when when people go after Beniers than they did at times last season. And, and but but Benier is going to have to learn how to take it and, and continue to work through. Um, I, I'm curious to see. It. He he did sort of have a resurgence towards the end of the season. Uh, a lot of that might have had to do with the quality of the teams that the Kraken were playing. They weren't playing some very good teams at the end, uh, and that helped them pad their record a bit. And then they got in the playoffs, and and it was mostly the Jordan Everly and Yanni Gord show. I mean, Beniers was there, but he wasn't quite as dominant as he had been at times during the regular season. So I want to see how he comes back and how he responds. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not I'm not minimizing the effects of a concussion for sure, but I mean the Kraken will want to see how he responds as well. I think they think he's going to take a step forward, and, and you know I, I have every reason to believe he will. I mean he did a heck of a lot his first season, but it, you know if he doesn't, then uh, you know the Kraken might have to take a look at some things. I, I think that's a question mark that they'll have going forward. There's all kinds of talk about giving him an extension, a contract extension, mm-hmm. but I think the Kraken want to wait a month or two. See what they've really got. See if he comes back without missing a beat and, and, and can kind of get in there the way he was early on last season and, and play a full, a complete two-way season before they start opening the, the, the bank vault for him just yet. But, I mean, certainly he had a great first year, and I, I, I really, you know, I hope for the best for him. He's definitely a guy they're holding the captain spot for because they're not naming a captain this season. They didn't have one last year, and they're clearly hope, holding it for Beniers, and they'll probably give it to him a year from now as long as he you know, keeps progressing the way they think. He's such an impressive player, and it seems like he's an impressive young man as well. And yeah, you're right. It's going to be interesting to see when, when he does get the captaincy and how his game evolves. Uh, the other guy who had a massive year for the Kraken on the back end was Vince Dunn. 64 points. I mean, he crushed his career high, You know, almost doubled his career high from the year before of getting 35 points. What should realistic expectations be for Vince Dunn in the type of season he should be having this upcoming year? Well, it's interesting because early in Vince Dunn's career, when he was with St. Louis, he won the Stanley Cup. And then the next year, you know, there were a lot of high hopes for him. A lot of people thought he would have the season that he had last year with the Kraken. And, and, but there were some, you know, a couple of in-between seasons, a couple of so-so seasons for him in there. Uh, with the one that caused St. Louis to let him go in the expansion draft. And then the other that 
Um, you know, the first crack in season wasn't always the best for Vince Dunn. Uh, but then, you know, last season, he had the season everybody thought he might have a few years ago. So expectations are, are strange that way. Sometimes the perception can, can change over time. I think if Dunn had, had leaped into this season coming off his early years in St. Louis, uh, nobody would be asking that question. But I think because there were a the couple of ho-hum seasons in between that, that everybody's a little surprised now to see Vince Dunn doing this. And, and rightfully so, they wonder if he can keep doing it. So it's kind of a, a bit like Matty Beniers. I, I, you know, maybe maybe not so much so, but because uh, Dunn's not that young anymore, he's in his mid twenties, whereas Beniers is still only uh, twenty years old, and so um, twenty twenty one years old, and and so there's a, a huge difference age wise there, um, and I think that's also fueling the concerns. People are wondering, is this a one off for Vince Dunn? I, I think that pairing him with, with Adam Larson really helps because Larson's a, a more of a lot more of a stay at home defenseman, very conservative at times, but also he, he's very reliable and he's in there every single game. I, I, Adam Larson hasn't missed a game in something like six years. So that that's going to help Vince Dunn as well. Helps him be more creative, helps him take chances. And I think Dunn's a much smarter player than he was a couple of years ago. Um, he prides himself on his defense and, and, he isn't as careless at times with the puck anymore. He still has his moments, but he's not as careless as he was uh, definitely in his first Kraken season. And, and I think he was paired with uh, with different people that time. And I think when, when Mark Giordano left the team, it really uh, presented a challenge for Vince Dunn. And I think he rose to it last season. I think he decided, look, they're looking at me to be the man now on the power play and, and you know, on five-on-five five play. And he did that. He drove a lot of the offensive play for a team that didn't have a whole lot of offense. And he did pay a lot of attention to his defense, and he got to be a more physical defenseman than he was even in his first crack in season. So, so all of those are positive signs, positive steps. Um, what I want to see is how he responds to the pressure of his contract. If let's say he goes a few games without a point, you know, is that going to start you know nagging in the back of his head? Is, is he going to um, you know press too much and do the things that he wasn't doing last season? And and, and so that's what you look for, I guess, in a, in a player who's a little bit younger. Um, but the way his contract's structured as well, I mean, he, he's betting on himself. It's only a four-year deal, so if he wants to get bigger money after this, there's still going to be a lot of runway for him as long as he can start living up to his contract right now. You know, it was uh, thought that the Seattle Kraken were one of the teams that were at least interested in acquiring Eric Carlson earlier in the summer. Obviously, he ended up in, in Pittsburgh, but you know, I, I, I guess my wonder is, do you think Ron Francis is... Um, you know, sort of on the lookout for that big impact piece to add to this roster to help it get over the top. I think Ron France, I, th- I think one of the things that the Kraken are looking at, I, I, I spoke earlier just about um, how this might be sort of a step back season for a little bit, at least before they step, they leap forward. I mean, another young player who they're going to try to work into the roster at some point probably this season, if not absolutely by next season, is Riker Evans, who was their uh, second-round draft pick from two years ago. He, he had an outstanding first season with Coachella Valley in the AHL, made the all-star team. I think he was second in points on the team in, in their playoff run, which lasted 26 games. So that was, that was a pretty significant time for him to be leading the team in, in, in points and uh, I, I think in goal scoring as well. He was He was right up there. And so that they're looking at him as a possible offensive contributor going forward. They're not really sure where, where the ceiling is on this guy just yet. Um, the big knock on him in junior, of course, was he was undersized and that, you know, a lot of people thought he wouldn't go higher than the fourth round. Well, they, they made a real gamble taking him in the second round and it's paid off big time for the Kraken. 
And so, you know, if he, he's actually grown a little bit and he's starting to fill out a little bit more. And, and so, you know, they might want to see where his uh, offensive skills take him at this stage. He's looked very good, very sharp. Uh, he looked very sharp in the playoffs last year offensively, and he's looked very good um, as well in, in, in uh, you know, limited preseason action so far, uh, but also, you know, in the workouts here. And I think they're really curious to see where he wants to go. And that might be why they didn't want to commit big-time money for multiple years to a guy like Eric Carlson just yet. Uh, and Ron Francis also tends to be a bit conservative with these ty- types of things. He hasn't gone out and signed big free agents either in Seattle. The deal was with Phil Grubauer here in Seattle for uh, for what Grubauer uh, ended up getting, a six-year contract. And so um, that that's not a, Ron Francis's MO, to commit big future dollars to players. And, you know, maybe he'll he'll start to ease his way out of that when when he's more sure of what he has here in Seattle, but he's also keeping a lot of that salary cap room open, not only to accommodate a Beneers contract, but to also accommodate a Shane Wright contract if he's eventually going to need to do that. Um, you know, So he's had a lot of that playing out in his head as he goes forward. Jeff, we really appreciate the time. Thanks for this. No problem, guys. Take care. Uh, there is Jeff Baker of the Seattle Times joining us, uh, Canucks and Seattle Kraken. And as we preview the Pacific Division, you know, I think, as much as L.A., Edmonton, Vegas seem like the three teams you can count on continuing to be in the Western Conference playoff picture, just because Seattle came out of nowhere last year, I don't feel like they really upgraded their team in the offseason in any real way other than hoping for young players to take a step. Mm-hmm. They're the team that you kind of circle and say – is somebody going to take a step back? They're probably the odds-on favorite for that. They very well could be. I mean, especially the year Vince Dunn had. Now, if he's able to replicate in the way Jared McCann scored, is he able to score at that same type of level, yeah. right? They lost some secondary scoring, which was a really big boon for them. And when you look at the way they played, they're a team that created scoring chances, but they didn't create... They were 25th in the league last year in creating high danger scoring chances in terms of rates per game. Yeah. So they created a lot of volume and shots and decent chances, and they scored a bunch. What if that dries up a little bit? Yeah. And I think that's going to be a bit of an issue potentially for them. They'll still be a tough team to play against because they're good in terms of controlling play. They roll four lines. They have a strong defense and solid goaltending. But they could have a hard time, like you mentioned, being as proficient with their goal scoring. And that could be a bit bit of a problem for them. Because a lot of guys, you know, we talk about Kuzmenko in the year he had. There are a few guys riding percentages on that Kraken team last year. Uh, Jared McCann, I think, was second in the league in shooting percentage behind Andre Kuzmenko. Also had a 40-goal year last year. Jeff Rowe, uh, I saw Vince Dunn and Adam Larson listed on the score as a top-six defense pairing. Look, it's not completely out of line. Those two played incredibly well together last year. They didn't lose their matchups on a ton of nights for the Seattle Kraken last year. Vince Dunn and Adam Larson were a perfect fit together. Last season, at least. No, they were. Um, And it's one of those things where Adam Larson, when we heard about him being in the expansion draft potentially and how Seattle really wanted him, Vancouver was a team that really wanted to add Adam Larson. And even though he's not a perfect defenseman, he's good at moving the puck. He's really good defensively. And he's good on the PK. He's got some size. He's good. He's he's a right shot defenseman that would have been a real nice fit next to Quinn Hughes. And he's a right shot. I mean, that would have been, you know, a long-term nice fit. Adam Larson's really good. And when you put him next to a talented player, he's usually going to let that guy be the best version of himself. You know, as uh, it's funny, like, not that you're doing complete revisionist history on uh, the the Oilers trading Taylor Hall for Adam Larson, but uh, when... 
when the Oilers made that trade, Larson was kind of being looked at as a bust. He's really, um, you know, he's found his game and yes. has become a very solid stay-at-home type top four defenseman on the right side, which is, as we see in the National Hockey League, very hard to find and very valuable when you do have one. Now, as for the Kraken, I kind of wonder if the Canucks want to play a more Kraken style of game this year. And by that, I only mean looking at it, I guess, in a simplistic way. The Canucks... Look, for me, they have more high-end talent with Pedersen and Hughes and that, and certainly a better goaltender. But playing a more, we're going to roll four lines, we're going to have some scoring depth through four lines and be a solid, play solid team defense as much as we can at five on five. It feels like the Canucks want to be more of that, which is what got the Kraken into the playoffs last year. Yeah, I mean, the... The epitome of that style is a, is the uh, Golden Knights yes. and how they played, right? The Kraken were a similar template, but not with as much skill and talent overall. And that's why there is a disparity between the two teams, obviously. I do think there are some similarities in with what, what Vancouver would want to do. You're right, in terms of having four lines and not, being a, not having to feel like you have to shelter somebody too much, yeah. you know? I wonder in terms of how they generate offense and how much Seattle shoots, if Vancouver is going to do the same thing. It's tough to tell because you know we haven't seen enough yet, but I don't think they like getting shots on goal just for the sake of getting shots on goal. Quality over quantity. Yeah, and you still have to shoot the puck, you know, obviously, and you still you know can't overthink things. But it seems like there's a big focus on where to get that offense from. And you see a lot of it being pushed towards the middle of the ice. They, mm-hmm. They're looking for to make a lot of plays off the wall into the middle of the ice and you know kind of create some pick plays almost as well to create some of that space. So I think there are some similarities, but there could be some differences in how they're trying to generate their offense. And that's one thing I'm curious about because I prefer the route of try to create quality chances as much as you can mm-hmm. versus just shoot the puck. We've seen Carolina have as much success as anybody can have with that style. Shooter from anywhere, gain zone entry. Volume, get, volume, volume. It's get out of your own zone, gain zone entry, and get shots on goal. Like, those are the three things that you live and die by. And that was Vegas by Pete DeBoer. It was. But it didn't ultimately help them get over the hump. Yeah, and it's hard in cer- certain situations where you have to create better quality scoring chances deeper in the playoffs. That's where that catches up with you a little bit, and yeah. we saw those same issues. And not to say you're, you're getting ahead of yourself and you're trying to create a team that can win a Stanley Cup ultimately, but if we're talking about trying to set these standards, right? We're trying to, at least in the, the Canucks are trying to set these standards, and they're trying to build towards being something better and bigger, I'd like to see that approach be more along those lines of creating quality scoring chances. Uh, we will see. But, you know, last night, just looking at some of the numbers um, in the more detailed numbers, even it was, I think, five, four high danger scoring chances for uh, the Edmonton Oilers last night. Um, you know, even though they, they won on the shot clock. So is that something that the Canucks are trying to be more of this year? Be more even on the high danger chance differentials? That would be a a welcomed differential from what we've seen in the past. Dan Richo, Satyar Shah, you are listening to Canuck Central.